You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. It's great to be here with you all. Um, my name is Bill, as I said a moment ago. Um, for those of you who may be visiting this morning, welcome. Uh, I am coming to you guys from Waco, Texas. Austin is my hometown, though, and my family and extended family still lives here. My wife is from here. We met in Austin in high school. We both ended up going to Baylor for college together. We got married shortly after that, and then I went on to Truett Seminary, which is now I, I, I work. Uh, I moved to Waco about a year ago and started working there as the assistant director of spiritual formation, um, and I teach theology um, in the Honors College and also in the seminary there. But before that, about a year ago, we left South Carolina. Uh, we were in Charleston for about three years. I was the associate rector at St. Peter's Church there. And that church is also part of the diocese of uh, Churches for the Sake of Others, which is your diocese. And that's how I got to know Sean about three or four years ago on a clergy retreat. Um, loved meeting him. I've known of you all for a while and have wanted to come here and worship with you. So I'm just glad to be here. We've had some friends pass through this church that are now in Charleston, who you might know, Weldon and Michelle Johnson. We got to spend last weekend with them and stay at their house, which is really great. Um, and I'm just excited to, to be here with you this morning. Uh, you guys are in a series on the book of Ephesians right now. This is the third week, third chapter. You've just heard the, the lesson read from chapter three, and it is, about, it is about the church and who the church is called to be, who the church is becoming. The last several verses in particular are some of the most eloquent and beautiful, I think. Uh, they might be familiar to you if you've grown up in church where Paul talks about the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of God's love for us that we might know that. But since you're studying the book, we're also reading the whole chapter. The first uh, couple sections, not usually included in the lectionary reading, which is good because there's some important stuff there too. And I was, I was especially struck just in looking at this story, this passage from Paul this week, by the way, in verse 6, he describes the mystery that he's been called to proclaim. In verse 6, he says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. The mystery is that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. And the reason this stood out to me is because if you were to ask me, like, Bill, what do you think the mystery of the Christian faith is? What is the gospel mystery? There's some things that would come to mind, but this is probably not the first one. I mean, this is important that the Jews and the Gentiles are being brought together. This is a big adjustment for the Jewish people, of course. But I would have said something probably more like, well, the incarnation, you know, that God becomes human. That's a mystery or that Jesus dies for us and forgives our sins, or that he's raised from the dead. I mean, these are mysterious things. Or the doctrine of the Trinity, this is a great mystery to us. I probably wouldn't have said that the Jews and the Gentiles are being united. That's the great mystery. But Paul says this is, this is, this is the mystery he's proclaiming. This is the consequence of the gospel. And you might have heard something uh, about this last week if you were here uh, in Ephesians 2. And we're going to have to turn there because sometimes uh, the way Scripture is laid out, the chapters and the verses are added um, after it's written to help us reference, but it's not necessarily to divide subjects. So chapter two really helps us understand chapter three. So we'll go back there um, in just a minute to get, to get a sense of uh, what, what Paul is really uh, driving at here. Um, I was, uh, 
just thinking about the, the history of Israel, um, this is how it started to make sense to me. And this is, some of you will recognize this and see now why, oh yeah, that's, it could, that explains why it's so mysterious. They have had a rough past and relationship with Gentiles, with non-Jews for quite some time. If you think back to the Old Testament and when David and Solomon were king, like those were good days. But ever since then, it's been kind of a downhill journey with a few upswings here and there, but nothing ever returning to the way it used to be, right? They, were, uh, they went into exile under uh, the Babylonian captivity in 586 BC, and then one empire after another over the course of the centuries, later on it was the Assyrians, then the Persians, and the Greeks, and now the Romans, someone else is in charge, someone is oppressing them, someone, them is, someone is telling them what, to, what they can and can't do, having control over them, sub subjecting them to foreign rule, to foreign gods, forcing them to assimilate to a foreign culture, all the things that Jews are trying to resist. And the, and the Romans were perhaps the worst. There's some brutal, ugly history between these people. They're, they had a hostile, a hostile relationship with Gentiles and with non-Jews. And so with that in mind, it makes sense why this would for Paul, at least, as a Jew, be seen as quite mysterious, a very bold claim to suggest that these two groups could become one, that they could be, they could be unified. Um, we were coming back from Charleston this last week, as I mentioned, and uh, it was nice because uh, for once we didn't have my uh, almost two-year-old son with us, and it, I was thinking about this uh, because Sean mentioned to me that they were flying to Northern California, their whole family, uh, six kids on a plane, and and I we flew earlier this summer, and with one kid, it was awful. Like it was one of the most difficult experiences in travel I've ever had. Now we had a lot of things go wrong, our plane was delayed, and it was really late, and it was just, we shouldn't have booked that flight. But this was one of those times where oh, this is this is nice. I got to leave uh, Liam with my parents, and we had kind of a break. So we're flying home, and I got to watch a movie on the plane, which also doesn't happen very often. But you watch movies sometimes on the plane that you wouldn't normally otherwise, because you're like, oh, this one's free. This looks interesting. And I saw this one called Hostels, uh, which was, it, it kind of appeared to be like a Western, um, cowboys and Indians type thing. Not Hostel like the, the horror movie that's really awful that I haven't seen that came out a long time ago, but Hostels, plural. And it tells the story um, of this relationship between a captain and the Calvary in the late 1800s in New Mexico and a group of soldiers who have to take this Cheyenne war chief and his family back to his homeland because of a treaty that's been made in Montana. And it kind of chronicles that journey. And this movie just like wrecked me. I was so uh, moved by it. And without telling you all the details, uh, essentially over time, these two groups are struggling together. They're facing all kinds of hardship and threats and, and dangerous situations. And they hate each other because they've basically been killing each other. That's why this chief was in prison because of what he'd done to the European Anglo white colonial settlers and what they had done to him. He, he hated them too. But they're forced to depend on each other and work together and f fight some common enemy enemies and then ultimately risk their own lives for each other and sacrifice their lives for each other. And I was, uh, it was really just profound, but I was trying to figure out why I, I got, I started tearing up and I, this doesn't happen very often to me in movies, let alone when I'm on a plane and it's like this action movie drama and all this stuff. Why is this hit striking such a chord with me? I think it's for a couple reasons. 
One, it, the movie did such a good job of depicting the true condition of our world and the hostile kind of relationship that we have with others. That's kind of the status quo. That's our, what our sinful nature has done to us. And you just feel the hardness of heart, the bitterness, the resentment, the hate. And you say, gosh, yeah, this is, this is how it is. A lot of times and a lot of, with a lot of our uh, a lot of people today, whether it's politics, between nations, between tribes, like this is our history as, as a species. And yet it's also compelling because the director is able to tug at your longing for things to not be that way. It's like we know somehow deep down that this is not what God intended for us, this hostility. This is not how we're supposed to live together, and yet it is what our world is like. But because we're made in God's image, there's something in us that can recognize, oh, well, no, we're, we're created for, for harmony, for unity, for peace, for reconciliation, for mutuality, for these things that we don't see, that we don't have. And the movie is, is pointing toward this, it all builds up to this moment when that is achieved, not to give it away. But, but I don't even necessarily recommend the movie. It's, it's kind of difficult. There's some dark and, and disturbing stuff, but it is, it is this powerful story because of what it suggests is possible. And I'm always surprised and grateful when Hollywood gets a glimpse of some of the truth of the Christian story. You know, it's, it's a lot of times it doesn't. It's not the full story, but this, this, this time it did. And turning back to chapter two in Ephesians from last week, Paul, Paul here is talking about how this reconciliation is made possible between Jews and Greeks. In Ephesians 2, I don't, it won't be on the screen, but you can turn with me there if you want, if you have a Bible with you, 14 through 16. He writes, For Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, here he's talking about Jews and Gentiles again, he's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of, here's that word, hostility, He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between these groups by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Now, pausing there, since Christ sets aside the law and the commandments to destroy the barrier between Jews and Greeks, and this, was, this was what Paul calls elsewhere a stumbling block to the Jews. That, that The very thing that set them apart, that gave them their sense of security and identity as observers and keepers of the law and the commandments, this is the very thing that God has set aside? That was difficult for them to believe and accept. And they have to give up a lot of their identity in order to be brought together with this other group who hadn't kept the law and observed the commandments. That's mysterious, right? That's a mystery. And continuing, he says, still in verse 14 or 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. There it is again. Through the cross, the hostility between these two groups is put to death. But this is scandalous. This is foolishness to the Greeks. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, that the people, the Gentiles, who have this philosophical tradition, this Greek culture that loves wisdom and understanding and reason and Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, they think that by learning and by... Uh, overcoming their ignorance, they can realize the truth and become virtuous people and have happiness, right? 
But this, this, is, this doesn't make any sense to them. This isn't reasonable. How is the cross the means by which God puts to death the hostility between people? The very thing that kept hostility in place, right? The very mechanism that Rome used to intimidate, to terrorize, to torture, to subdue enemies. God says, no, I'm going to take that same thing. I'm going to turn it on its head. I'm going to use it to release you from and, and break you free from this slavery, from this barrier that's keeping you from being in right relationship with each other and right relationship with me. This was hard for the Jews to believe because they wanted a king who would take over Rome and reinstate political power. And it was difficult for the Greeks to believe because anything weak or humiliating or cursed like the cross made no sense and they wanted nothing to do with it. This is the very way that God redeems the world and offers us new life. This is the gospel. But that's not even the final lesson for us this morning that Paul gets to in chapter 3, turning back there in verse 10. He says, and this is the startling claim that you guys are learning about and trying to live into as a church and that all churches are. He says his intent was that now through the church, okay, in light of this mystery that's been accomplished through the cross, breaking down the barrier of hostility, his intent was now that through the church, this manifold wisdom, this revealed mystery of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, he's saying, Paul is saying, the church is the site. It's the place. This is the community. This is the, this is the body of people. This is the group where we're going to proclaim the gospel and give the world a foretaste of God's new creation, of God's future for us, where all the mutually hostile elements are going to be broken down and removed, and where harmony and unity and peace and reconciliation and restored relationship are going to be offered and established. That's what we're supposed to be. I mean, this is a tall order. Now, it's not that we can control the world and make them do this. But they're supposed to be able to look at us and say, oh, wow, that's how things should be. That's how things are going to be. That's our hope. Look at the way they treat each other and are treating us. And this is a big, this is difficult. This is, this is not easy. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and he keeps saying that you're able to do this because you have the spirit living in you, giving you this power, giving you this freedom, this grace, this faith. There's a, uh, a British missionary theologian named Leslie Newbegin of the 20th century who I love, and he has this quote um, that's striking because, I mean, we live in this time, we live in this culture, y'all know. It's a secular society. I mean, there are Christians too. It's not like everybody's non-Christian, but, but even the Christians, even some of us sometimes, we live in such a way that reference to God just isn't, doesn't seem necessary anymore. Right? We, we believe that we can manage and um, get along and explain things just fine without talking about, without a relationship to God. And Newbigin says this, because he's coming back from being a, a missionary in India and he's seeing British and European society in the late 20th century and he's picking up on what we're living in now. And he says, how can this strange story that we've just heard about, this mystery, this gospel, how can this strange story of God made flesh, of a crucified savior, of resurrection and new creation, how can it become credible? For those who believe that the world can be explained and managed without reference to God, 
how can this be made, made, made credible? He says, I know of only one clue to answer that question, only one way to recognize the gospel. It's by a congregation that actually believes it. It's by seeing a church that really trusts in it and is striving to live according to it and to embody it. Friends, that's our calling and that's, that's our mission. And I know of no better way to conclude than to pray the prayer for us that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. And so hear these words again for resurrection, South Austin. Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.